Welcome to Murderous Roots, a podcast where murder and family meet as we explore the family tree of a killer. Hi there, Zelda. Hey, Denise. How are you? Fine. How are you? And hey, everybody, this is Murderous Roots. We're ready to share a murderous family tree with you. (laughs) We're very excited about it, too. Yes, because it's our spooky Halloween edition. And we forgot to wear costumes. Oh, man, I totally forgot. I was going to dig out my tiara and come as a unicorn fairy princess. Oh, I love that. Now, I, I was running crazy today, and I've been busy, and yeah, I completely forgot. So at my work, they sent around an email, and apparently Halloween is a thing where I now work, and they oh, people can bring their kids, and they go from department to department, and they can trick-or-treat and have candy and stuff. So we just have to sign up our department. So I need to make sure that my boss has signed us up, because hello... We have to be able to see the cute kids. I well, mean, yeah. And I also need to find out in my neighborhood if if Halloween's a thing. There's enough children here. I suspect it is. But mm-hmm. I need to know how much candy to buy. Because every gotcha. year, the last few years, I've just loaded up on candy, expecting tons and tons of children. And I got like five kids. Now, yeah. those five kids left very happy because I'm like giving them double handfuls. And I buy right. the good candy because I am not the miserly you know, spinster with a thousand cats <laughs> yet. Someday I aspire to this, but at the moment it's like, heck yeah, I'm going to buy the good candy. Also because if it's leftover, I end up eating it. So why would I get stuff I don't like? So yeah. In our neighborhood, we usually get anywhere between 50 to a hundred cr- trick or treaters. Oh, you're so lucky. That's Last so cool. year though, we didn't do it because of the pandemic. I just wasn't confident in having that. And we oh, did yeah. stick candy, though, outside our door to let kids come and take it. But we oh, didn't yeah. open the door and we didn't let the girls go trick-or-treating. Yeah. Instead, we did uh, hide and find the candy in the house. Oh, that's nice. That's fun. Yeah, but this year, the girls are all like, do we get to trick-or-treat every other day? I'm like, I've already answered the question. I go, it's weather dependent. Mm-hmm. As long as there's decent weather, then yes. Yeah. <laughs> if the weather is crappy... Like, if we have a sudden blizzard, then no. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, there you go. But, um, yeah, this next week's going to be crazy at my house. <laughs> yeah. You know, I have to make a run down to St. Louis in a couple days. And then on Thursday, which is my birthday, FYI. Happy birthday to <laughs> you. Happy birthday to you. You're really old. Happy birthday to you. Oh, thanks. You're older than me, though. (laughs) I know, but only by one year. (laughs) I'm not doing anything fun for my birthday. We're taking the two youngest for cheerleading camp with the local high school cheerleaders. Well, you know how to have fun. Oh, my God. It just happened to fall on that night. So is there anything fun planned for your birthday? Um, not really, no. I mean, it's a big birthday. Saturday, I'm going to a wedding. And my husband's going to a different wedding. We're going in opposite directions. We both have cousins okay. being married. And instead so, of choosing one over the other, we decided to divide and conquer. Well, you don't have to celebrate your birthday on your birthday. But this That's is true. like, this is a benchmark birthday. You need to do something. I know. I wish I could. I, I mean, originally I had hoped to go to like Vegas or something. Mm-hmm. I love the desert. And I, I'm not, I don't. So just so you know, 
I don't go to Vegas for the gambling, although I will gamble a little Mm -hmm. and I don't stay on the strip. I go and spend Vegas time in the desert. Mm -hmm. Oh, it's so beautiful there when you're outside of the city or you're up in the mountains. Mm -hmm. It's so beautiful there. I love Red Rock Canyon and Valley Mm -hmm. of Fire. Oh, yeah. And just spending a full day just doing that makes Mm -hmm. me happy. It's honestly only like two and a half hours, maybe three hours from Zion National Park. Mm hmm. So, yeah, there's lots to do. And only my evenings are usually spent on the strip. Oh, yeah. So I have a brother who lives there. And so mm-hmm. for me, going to Vegas is just going to visit my brother. So <laughs> it's not like, woohoo, party time. Excellent. Although I have witnessed a couple weddings in Vegas that were, you know, like one of them, Elvis walked the bride up the aisle. So <laughs> I can't say I've been, I've missed out on Vegas culture, but I have to say the parts I like are definitely not on the strip. Well, I think I've told you, I spent a couple of my formative years in life living in North Vegas. Yes. Mm-hmm. So my dad was Air Force. And he was stationed at Nellis. And so we lived in Vegas. How about you? You got a lot going on? Yeah, it's just work. You know, no biggie. Um, this is always, you know, October is always kind of a rough month because this is the same month my mother passed away. In fact, yesterday oh. was her anniversary. And then... Like a cousin that I was very close to passed away in October and uncle I was close to passed away in October. So October for me is like one of those months you just kind of like get through. But I do love fall and the temperature finally broke here and it's beautiful and the leaves are turning and there's pumpkin spice lattes available everywhere. (laughs) And I don't care if people think of me as a basic white girl with a side part. I don't even care because I love me some pumpkin spice. I love pumpkin anything. And I, I will eat or drink anything that has pumpkin to it. Well, if you love anything pumpkin, then I may I suggest a stop at Dairy Queen. <gasps> Tell me more. They have a pumpkin pie blizzard. Okay, I'm going to go there tomorrow. And my middle child loves it. It sounds amazing. In St. Louis, so you will remember this. Mm-hmm. In St. Louis at Ted Drew's Frozen Custard. Oh. I know. I'm like having a moment here. Mm-hmm. Their pumpkin pie concretes actually take a piece of pumpkin pie, an actual piece of pumpkin pie, and smash it up into the concrete. Oh. It is unbelievably and And for good. people who don't know, a concrete is like a blizzard. Actually, a blizzard is more like a concrete because Ted Drew's made it first. Yeah. Dairy Queen actually stole the idea and ran with it. (laughs) I mean, or borrowed the idea, I guess would be better. But that's actually a true statement. They got the idea from Ted Drew's and went from there. Ted Drew's for life, man. Oh, the best frozen custard in the planet. I just realized. They swear by it up in Wisconsin, Uh you know, around Milwaukee. And it's good, but it's not Ted Drew's good. No, 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 no. Ted Drew's is the OG. Okay, so Zelda, I have some exciting news. <laughs> Tell me. Oh, my God. I'm on pins and needles. We have two reviews. No. Are they good ones? I think so. Let's okay. see what you think. So this one's from Andrew Martin from Great Britain. And he said, listening to Denise and Zelda on this show is fascinating. Their conversation is friendly and warm, whilst their topic is far from it. Cold, dark, and twisted, and with little gruesome details left out. As the duo recount the case step-by-step and then discuss, it builds a morbid picture. Then it's over to the genealogical research to explore the criminals and sometimes the victims' families too, often uncovering insights or patterns and behavior that maybe inspired the killer. 
This show ticks all the boxes of true crime, biographical, and genealogical, and the host's sense of friendship makes it a breeze to listen to. Oh, oh my God, I want to bake him cookies. Same. Oh my gosh, thank you, Andrew Martin. That's so sweet. And then another one was from a Josh Shell, and he said, I love the back and forth between Denise and Zelda. These two do excellent research, and I'm loving the podcast so far. (gasps) Yay, Josh. Thank you. More cookies. Andrew, thank you, Josh. We appreciate it. And again, you know, just leave us a review and we'll probably read it. Yep. And and we live for this because it's not like we're making a lot of money off of it. (laughs) We live for the praise. We're we're in the negative when it comes to making money. <laughs> this is done from the heart. Mm-hmm. Murder from the heart. Um. By the way, I did want to mention something really quick. So I got a message on Twitter from Kathy from Haunting History Podcast. Ooh. And we actually put up a promo for them on our last episode. But their podcast is amazing. It talks about history and true crime and all sorts of great stuff. I'm loving it right now. Okay, I'm adding it right now on my Spotify list. She contacted me. She's like, how did I not know about you guys? Because she's also a genealogist. Oh, how fun. Oh, my so, gosh. Yeah. So <gasps> Maybe we could have her on sometime and we can all just like chat about that's what I was thinking. That'd be super fun. I'm in. So Let's do it. We should probably jump in and discuss our spooky topic. Woo! I feel like <laughs> we should have background creepy music as we say, we're discussing the Amityville mm-hmm. Horror. Okay, let's try that again, both of us at the same time. Okay. Ready? We're discussing See? the Amityville, Amityville Horror. horror. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we suck at that. <laughs> yes, we do. <laughs> we tried. Dear listeners, we tried. We did. So um, the DeFeo murders in 1974 spawned this horror movie genre that captured the imagination of this entire country. Oh, yeah. So, but it's what happened after Ronald DeFeo's conviction that makes this famous. Because sadly, the murders themselves are kind of a well-worn path. Troubled son Mm -hmm. kills family. So a lot of this I actually kind of ripped from biography.com because they have quite the turn of phrase when it came to this particular family. Mm -hmm. But starting from the very beginning of this sad tale, Ronald DeFeo Jr., whose nickname happened to be Butch, which is kind of eerie when you think about it. Um, That's my dad's nickname when he was growing really? up. Oh, yeah. Mm. He dun, dropped dun, it dun. a long time ago. He dropped it. <laughs> but but it's one of those things where the family, his family side of the family still call him that. Interesting. Because the, he couldn't, t- he's like, I can't tell them to stop calling me what they've always called me. Yeah, that's true. I tried that and it doesn't work. They just go, they double down. Your family will <laughs> always double down. Yep. Well, he was born on September 26, 1951 in Brooklyn, New York. Four siblings soon followed, two boys and two girls. Now, his dad, Ronald Sr., worked at his father-in-law's Brooklyn Buick dealership and provided his wife, Louise, and family with a comfortable upper-middle-class lifestyle. But he reportedly was an abusive asshole. And Ron Jr. was also the victim of relentless bullying at school, especially after the family moved to Amityville when Ron was 15. Now, by the way, I'm sure you know this, Denise, but Mm -hmm. some of our dear listeners might not, but Amity means a friendly relationship. Right. So basically they moved to Friendship Village and it apparently was not really all that friendly. Just saying. So as DeFeo matured, he began lashing out physically against his father as well as his few friends. His concerned family took him to a psychiatrist, but the visits didn't really sit well with him and he denied that he even needed help. So the trips to the doctor stopped and by age 17, DeFeo had become an LSD and heroin user and was expelled Mm. from school for his violent outbursts. 
Now, I have to say, when my brothers became assholes as teenagers, they just enlisted. So <laughs> I kind of think that perhaps this would have been a better path for him to take. Uh, pr- probably. But, you know, at that time, Vietnam was still going on. Well, that is very true. Yeah, my brothers got sent to the Middle East, whereas, you know, he would have gotten sent to Asia. Yeah. But the point of all of this is that his father and grandfather decided to help him by giving him a job at the car dealership. And basically, they tried to bribe him to behave. They gave him loads of expensive gifts, like cars and boats. He got a boat when he was 14 years old, Oh my! Goodness. you know, to try to bribe him to behave. But he just kept getting more violent. So in 1974, Ron DeFeo Jr., feeling irritated by what he believed a meager salary, for which he did practically nothing, by the way. He kind right? of came and went however he wished. And I was mm-hmm. just like... Man, I want to be spoiled rotten like that. <laughs> you oh know, my goodness, yes. I'd, I'd risk becoming a murderer for that. But anyway, he decided he was going to embezzle money from the car dealership, his own father and grandfather's mm. car dealership. So in late October of 1974, the dealership entrusted him with the responsibility of depositing more than $20,000 in the bank. Mm -hmm. So what did he do? He planned a mock robbery with a friend, agreeing to split the money evenly with his accomplice. So like everything was fine until the police got involved. (laughs) The police (laughs) showed up at the dealership to question him. And then instead of just calmly answering the officer's questions, as a crime victim might do... DeFeo exploded into rage. Yeah. Yeah. And so then the police like, oh, this seems suspicious. Perhaps he's lying. And so they asked him to come to the station to check out mug shots. And he was like, yeah, no, I'm not going to do that. So then his dad was like, I wonder if Ron did this. So he started asking his son about his lack of cooperation. And then DeFeo threatened to kill his father. Mm. Yeah. And at another time, in fact, one point when his parents were arguing, Ron loaded a shotgun, put it to his dad's head and pulled the trigger. Holy. Yeah. The rifle malfunctioned. So nobody died that day. But literally, Ron just like, then just kind of put the gun down and walked off and everybody pretended it didn't happen. So what you're telling me is there were signs? There were signs. There were so many signs. So then on November 13th, 1974... Upon arriving at work, Ron Jr. called home. His dad hadn't shown up to work yet, but he got in really early that day, like around 6.30. Mm -hmm. He called home. Nobody answered. Around noon, he's like, I'm bored. And he left, as one does when one is bored with work. You know, don't you you do that when you were working outside the home? All the time. Yeah. Yeah, my boss is so cool with that. Yeah. So he left work around noon and spent the day with friends. And oddly, he shared with each person he visited that he couldn't seem to reach anyone at home. Now, here's where the testimony varies a wee bit. So DeFeo went home after 5.30 p.m. One account has DeFeo running to a nearby bar screaming his parents had been shot. Another account says at 6 p.m. he called a friend saying someone had broken into the house and shot his family. Now, it is possible both things happened, Mm -hmm. but each of the accounts that I read with those excluded the other account. So I suspect it's probably it all happened and it's just people picking out different details to share. Well, friends came to the house and they contacted authorities. When a Suffolk County detective questioned DeFeo about who could be a suspect in these murders, he told them, okay, get this, get this. This is the best. He told them he believed mafia hitman Louis Fellini may have been responsible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So DeFeo cited an old grudge between the man and the family over some work DeFeo did for him at the dealership. 
He then told police he'd been up late watching TV and, unable to sleep, left for work early. He said he believed his family was alive when he left for work and then told them of his whereabouts for the rest of the day. Police placed DeFeo in protective custody as they searched for a suspect. Now I have to tell you, I think it's very dicey blaming a mafia hitman for a murder you're not 100% certain that mafia hitman did. Because... (laughs) Let's, would you want to piss off a hitman? I mean, no. seriously. No. no. No, you want, you do not want the attention of the mafia, right? For anything, good or right. bad. You just, just want to like lead a nice little parallel life where you never intersect. Right. But he did, he took the chance. So weirdly, after police more carefully searched the family's house, DeFeo's testimony began to crumble. Go figure. Mm-hmm. Finding an empty box for a recently purchased 35 caliber Marlin gun in DeFeo's room gave authorities a bit of a pause. As the timeline came together, especially once they realized that Fellini was like literally out of town that day and could yeah. not have done that. It seemed more realistic. The murders had happened earlier in the morning. The family had all still been wearing their pajamas, so it couldn't have happened later in the day. Mm -hmm. And it places DeFeo at home at the time of the homicides. So, of course, authorities questioned DeFeo about the new evidence and he began changing his story. Leaning into, doubling down on the Fellini story. Right. He had appeared at the house early that morning and put a revolver to DeFeo's head. Or, no, 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 Fellini and an accomplice dragged him from room to room as they murdered his family. As the story unraveled, police extracted a confession because he finally broke down and said, Once I started, I just couldn't stop. He said, It went so fast. In sum, DeFeo acted on his threat to kill his father and threw the rest of the family in as a bonus. Using a 35 caliber Marlin rifle from his secret gun stash, he entered his parents' bedroom and shot them both while they slept. He then entered his brother's bedroom, shooting them both in their beds. He ended by shooting his sisters point blank in their bedrooms. All the murders took place within 15 minutes. Mm-hmm. DeFeo then showered, dressed for work, and collected his bloody clothing and the murder weapon in a pillowcase. He dumped the evidence in a storm drain in Brooklyn on the way to work at the dealership at 6 a.m. The neighbors heard nothing other than the barking of the family dog. So literally he fired the gun, I think eight times, and there was no silencer on it, but nobody heard anything. So DeFeo's trial began on October 14th, 1975, nearly a year from the date of the murders. DeFeo's defense attorney, William Weber, attempted an insanity plea for him and the murder suspect told jurors that he heard voices that told him to kill his family. The psychiatrist for the defense, Dr. Daniel Schwartz, supported the claim, saying that DeFeo was neurotic and suffered from dissociative disorder. But the psychiatrist for the prosecution, Dr. Harold Zolan, provided evidence that DeFeo suffered from antisocial personality disorder which meant that DeFeo was aware of his actions, so insanity was no defense. Mm -hmm. So the jurors agreed with the assessment, and on November 21st, 1975, they found DeFeo guilty on six counts of second-degree murder. He was sentenced to six consecutive life sentences and sent to Greenhaven Correctional Facility in Beekman, New York. And, of course, his appeals to parole board were all turned down. Now, after his conviction, he made up all kinds of nonsensical crap about Mm -hmm. his siblings being involved, his mother killing the kids, and all this other nonsense, all of which proved to be completely false. 
Now, Ron died just earlier this year on March 12th, 2021 at the Albany Medical Center. And as yet, his official cause of death is yet to be determined. So unless you found something, Denise, I couldn't no, find anything. No, I still haven't seen anything about his cause of death. So now the seventh victim in all of this, the family sheepdog Shaggy, was not harmed during the murders, but he ended up in the pound. But according to a random message board I found on the internet, he was adopted <laughs> by a family friend and nicely kept until his death. A Newsday article mentioned a second dog, a nameless German shepherd, but I don't know for sure if this dog existed because I only found it mentioned in one article. Yeah. So now his conviction was the beginning of a horror movie megastar, The House at 112 Ocean Avenue in Amityville. Mm -hmm. A family, the Lutzes, bought the house and furniture altogether super cheap, moved in, lived there 28 days, moved out and declared the entire home demonically possessed. And this was helped along by a priest declaring getting injured when he tried to bless the house. A book, The Amityville Horror by Jay Anson, was published in 1977, two years after the trial. Let's say, because they were on this, right? Yeah. And then only two years later, in 1979, a movie was right there following on its heels. So let's chat a little bit about this house. Yeah. This character in The Amityville Horror. So the house was built in 1927. It's a five-bedroom, three-bathroom building in the Dutch colonial style. I hear tell a fourth bathroom has been added, but it's a little hard to tell. Um, it originally contained a swimming pool and a boathouse and is situated along a canal. In a 2000 interview with the History Channel, the History Channel, yeah. right? Like ancient aliens and although I love ancient aliens, but that's only that's for reasons best discussed elsewhere. <gasps> Kathy Lutz claimed that a tragedy befell every family that ever lived in the DeFeo home. Moreover, Jay Anson's book suggests the property is cursed because it once belonged to John Ketchum, a suspected witch who had fled Salem, Massachusetts before taking up residence in Amityville. <laughs> All right. So during an August 9th, 1979 press conference, Jim Cromarty, then owner of the Amityville house said, I was born in Amityville. I knew every family that grew up in this house. And that's a crock. The Lutzes say that every family that was brought up in this house had bad things happen to them. It happens to be a fact that only one family had a tragedy happen to them in this house. Every other family has had nothing but good things come out of this house. But let's look back. Because in the late 1600s, Amityville was part of Huntington Township. A check of the historical society located in Huntington, a town approximately 13 miles from Amityville, revealed there were several John Ketchums in the area. Ah. Because the records of this time period are sketchy at best, there's no clear proof that any Ketchum ever resided on or near the property. However, the most definitive proof against any John Ketchum's being a witch came from the Ketchum family's own extensive research into their own genealogy. After careful examination, they've been able to determine there was never a witch named John Ketchum. Mm -hmm. Now, according to the deeds and information compiled by the Amityville Historical Society, the Ocean Avenue property had once been farmland belonging to the Irelands, one of Amityville's most prominent influential families. On January 14, 1924, Annie Ireland, possibly the most Irish name ever written down on paper. Right? Yeah. <laughs> sold the property to John and Catherine Moynihan. The following year, Amityville builder Jesse Purdy constructed the large Dutch colonial that the Moynihans lived in, and that still stands there today. So when John and Catherine Moynihan died, their daughter, Eileen Fitzgerald, moved in with their own family. She lived there until October 17, 1960, 
when John and Mary Riley bought the house. Because of marital problems, the Rileys divorced, very Irish, very mm-hmm. Irish area, you can tell. So divorce was probably a bit frowned upon in 1960, but they sold the house to the DeFeos on June 28, 1965. So up to this point, there's no whisper of any kinds of hauntings. Mm-hmm. And they lived in the house almost nine years, actually more than nine years, until on December 13, 1974, you know, all that stuff kind of came to a head with the, you know, you know, they all got murdered. Yeah. So after the DeFeos, the Lutz family moved in and then, of course, moved out in 28 days. In fact, little factoid, their stay was so short, they didn't even make a payment on the $60,000 mortgage they had on the house. Were they They able to sell it that quick, too? No, they just let the bank have it. They returned the house to the bank. Oh. Yeah. So then in September 1977, Jay Anson's best-selling book, Amityville Horror, is released to the public. And then, of course, the movie came out in 1979. Well, in 1977, in March, so a few months before the best-selling book came out, mm-hmm. Jim and Barbara Cromarty purchased the home from the bank. Although plagued by hordes of tourists searching for supernatural phenomena, the Cromartys managed to live there happily for a decade. Nevertheless, they changed the address. They made a deal with the mm-hmm. city to change the address to confuse the curious. Then, the Cromartys sued the Lutzes, Jansen, and the publishers of the Amityville Horror. Their multi-million dollar suit argued that not only was the book an invasion of privacy, but that false misrepresentations were made willfully and solely for commercial exploitation. And eventually the parties arrived at an undisclosed settlement. On August 17, 1987, Peter and Jean O'Neill purchased the house from the Cromarties. During their stay, they changed the famed eye windows. If you look at pictures of this house... Mm-hmm. From the side, they had these sort of quarter round windows that look that people said look like eyes. So they changed that and they changed it to square ones. And then they filled in the pool. And then the taxes were super high. So the O'Neills moved to save money because they wanted to send their kids to college. Sure, yeah, you can, can see that. that. Mm-hmm. On June 10th, 1997, Brian Wilson purchased the house for approximately 310000 on September 21st, 2010, it sold for $950,000. The D'Antonio family purchased it. Yeah, after being listed for $1.1 million. I looked yeah. that up too. Yeah, and I thought it was odd that in 80, in 97, only sold for 310000 I yeah. mean, that Same. seems kind of weird. On February 2017, it sold for $605,000. And those homeowners still seem to be happy, happy to live there. And do you know what it was originally was listed for before it sold for $605,000? Wasn't it like, well, it was $80,000 the Lutzes bought it for. Right. It was listed for $850,000. So they took quite the cut from what they were asking mm-hmm. in 2017. Yeah, they did. But, you know, all those things that were happening in 2017... Yeah. You know, it's not surprising because the housing market hadn't started going up yet. Uh, if they would waited a year, they would have made some bank on that. Yeah. Oddly, no homeowner except the Lutzes ever noticed anything supernatural about the house. It's so strange. Now, do you believe the Lutzes? Not at all. No. No. Not I, even I, a little bit. I, I can't help but think that they did that on purpose. They knew they, they could get a book deal. They wanted to take advantage of the murders mm-hmm. and that's exactly what I think. And I think there were too, so many people happy to get on that bandwagon and help them make some money and make some money themselves in the process. Yeah. I mean, let's face it. That book made Jay Anson's career. Yeah. I mean, and then there've been almost 20 movies made off this story since then. I have never and... seen a single one of those. Yeah, I haven't either actually. So I kind of want to watch at least the first one with Josh Brolin in it, Uh huh. but 
it's hard to find at the moment. I couldn't find it where I could stream it. So for free oh, at least. Funny. Because I'm like, well, maybe it's not that scary. I just tend to avoid horror movies. Mm-hmm. I don't do good with them. I do too. But you know, being a Gen Xer, and I'm sure you had the same experience. Mm-hmm. I mean, this happened in the 70s. So during our formative years, yeah. this was headlines. I mean, oh, yeah. anytime something was happening with it, you know, because what I was five years old when the murders happened, six mm-hmm. years old when the trial happened, I was 10 when the movie came out. And I mean, and this is stuff. And you know, of course, then the shining and all these stuff. I mean, Horror was really taking off. Well, The Exorcist, I think, came out around the same time as this movie. Mm-hmm. I have seen The Exorcist. Mm-hmm. And so that's where I hope that Amityville Horror is more along the lines of like The Exorcist versus something like um, Nightmare on Elm Street, where it's more psychological it horror. Versus... Well, yeah, I think there's a lot of parallels between this and The Shining, too, okay. because it's definitely more psychological. Do you have anything more, Zelda, on that one? Nope, that's it. Well, that was excellently done, by the way. Oh, thank you. Now let's hear about their relatives. Well, before we get into everything, I'm going to talk about one thing I thought you were going to bring up, but you didn't. Um, So I'll just go over it really quickly. In 1986, Ronald came out with another one of his theories on what had happened involving who he claimed was his wife back in 1974, Geraldine DeFeo. Anyhow, we'll get to her a little bit. And that her brother actually had committed the crime. And Mm -hmm. he went so far as presenting um, affidavits and the whole bit. Mm -hmm. Now, this is important because this school of thought is still being pushed. Even though they admitted that the brother didn't even exist. Yes. People are crazy. So I'm going to talk about Geraldine a little bit because there was um, a documentary made as well that some people have seen and they all seem to believe this. Oh, gosh. So... There are several schools of thought on her claims of marriage to DeFeo, but there is no evidence of a marriage in 1974. And I even read an article positing that it could be that they were just in a common law marriage. Mm-hmm. However, knowing everything that Zelda's told us in past episodes, I double-checked the laws for the states of New Jersey and New York. Uh-huh. And I found out neither state recognizes common law marriages and have not since the 1930s. I've never been more proud of your research. Oh, thank you. Of course, that article was written by Rick Osuna, who has a vested interest in the information being valid. See, he wrote a book on the Amityville killings posed as a reinvestigation. Some of his conclusions are that DeFeo did not work alone. In fact, it seems that much of the book rests on Geraldine as his source, whom the author claims to have properly vetted. (laughs) His definition of vetting and mine must defer greatly. Wow. So, in 1986, Fitch DeFeo claimed that he married Geraldine in the 1970s and that her brother, a Richard Romando, was responsible for the murders. And, and as you said, Geraldine would later say under oath that he didn't even exist. Mm-hmm. So, I decided to see if I could verify any of Geraldine and Ronald's 1986 story and what Rick Osana had put in his book. And he has a website even. So if you're Googling stuff for Ronald DeFeo, he's one of the first websites that will pop up. So be very cautious when you go there for information. And also, Geraldine claimed to have Ronald's daughter. So I wanted to find out if her daughter, and I'm going to give her a an alias, Jane, is really Butch's daughter. Something even he refuted before his death. In fact, DeFeo, towards the end of his life, said that Geraldine is a fake. So I don't, I don't trust either party. So 
Yeah. Where do you go? Do you go with which liar? They're all unreliable narrators. Exactly. So let's sort truth from fiction. Were DeFeo and Geraldine ever married? Yes. The couple married in 1989, although she claims it was their second marriage. She claimed they married under pressure from Ronald's father in October 1974 and even had a copy of the marriage certificate. But the state of New Jersey does not have a copy of that marriage certificate. Hmm. Could it have been faked? Yeah. So it's possible they did marry but never turned the certificate over to the state and made it official. But mysteriously, one of the names on the marriage certificate was Thomas Baldino Jr., And he was a magistrate, but he hadn't been a magistrate for 10 years. Uh, uh, Okay. And one more thing. In 1974, at the time of the murders, there was a lot of discussion around DeFeo's girlfriend, Mindy Weiss, whom I believe testified at his trial. Wow. And um, I'd like to give a further note. Ronald actually married a different, three different women than Geraldine while he was in prison. No way. Yes. I mean, all led to divorce. But so these women were wanting to be with this guy. That's so nuts. Right? I tell you, people are just crazy. They are. Did they have a child together in 1974? Well, it was claimed that she and Ronald had a daughter on August 21st, 1974 in New Jersey. But there is no vital record of a daughter born to Ronald DeFeo on that day. However, there is a copy of a birth certificate of a daughter born to Geraldine and Joseph Pisani on that day. Ah. So needless to say, I'm skeptical of anything Geraldine said about the Fayos, much less the events leading to the murder. Geraldine died in 2015, and her word is suspect at best. I think what is most telling to me was that she never gave up the DeFeo last name, despite claiming she didn't like the attention it brought her. Her name at death was Geraldine DeFeo Gates. Wow. Which is hysterical. For lots of reasons. But for due diligence, I decided to learn more about Geraldine. Because from what I understand, um, the author of that book um, likes to sue people if they disagree with him sometimes. So I'm coming with facts. And here's what my research revealed about Geraldine Rollo, which was her maiden name, born July 5th, 1946. Her first husband was Frederick Corey, who she married in October 1963 at Lock Arbor, New Jersey. She was 17, he was 23. She married her second husband, Joseph Pisani, in August 1972 in Fredericksburg, Virginia. They would allegedly have another ceremony two years later in New Jersey in October 1974, which is the same time she said she married DeFeo. Mm-hmm. And this was because she was still married to Corey. Oh my gosh. She had never divorced him. And that's according to her wow. son, Peter. She married Gerald H. Gates in October 1978 in Patterson, New Jersey, after she had divorced Pisani. If she had married Ronald, a divorce would have been recorded, and given the nature of his name, the press would have noticed. Mm -hmm. So she would have had to have divorced him before she could marry somebody else, right? Mm -hmm. In fact, no one knew of her existence until 1986. Oh, my gosh. Geraldine has had quite the rap sheet. Not only was she charged with grand larceny in 1979, along with scheming to defraud that year, stealing a car in 1977, and embezzlement, but also misuse of food stamps in 1985, and welfare fraud, and so much more. Some charges long before marrying Ronald in 1989. Joseph and Geraldine's daughter, the one she claims was Peter's, has also been arrested multiple times on charges such as narcotics, false statements, obstruction, 
and in March this year, driving while impaired with drugs. Oh my gosh. Jane's brother, Peter, has come out publicly denying his mother and sister's story. Okay. Now, at first I thought I might bring up Jane's real name. Mm-hmm. Um, based on the fact that she was part of a so-called, the so-called documentary called Shattered Hopes, the true story of the Amityville murders. Mm-hmm. However, I learned recently that an alias was used in the film, so I'm not going to out her. So I tend not to believe a word Geraldine had said. And, you know, oh, and also I found this affidavit that Geraldine submitted to the police in 1990. <laughs> wow. So this is uh, four years after the claims were made in the papers and all that about her brother being involved. And these are her words. About two years ago, I received a manila envelope in the mail from a friend of mine, Ronald DeFeo. Contained in the envelope were two two-page affidavits. One of them was written out in the name of Geraldine DeFeo. The other was in the name of Richard Romando and was signed by Richard Romando. There was also a letter from Ronald DeFeo asking me to sign the affidavit as Geraldine DeFeo and to go get both of them notarized. I wish to state at this time that I have never been married to Ronald DeFeo. I have been married to Gerald H. Gates since 1978. And prior to that, I was married to Joseph Pisani since April of 1974. I took the two affidavits to a notary that I knew in Pennsylvania. The notary was a friend of mine. He did not question the affidavits and he notarized both of them, even though he knew me as Geraldine Gates and even though Richard Romando did not appear before him and swear to his affidavit. I wish to state that I do not know any Richard Romando and do not know if there is any such person. When I visited Ronald DeFeo, I said to him that I don't have a brother named Richard Romado, and he just told me to shut up. I also wish to state that I have read both of these affidavits and that the material contained within these statements is all false and never took place. Back about 1985, Ronald DeFeo sent me a forged copy of a marriage certificate showing that he and I had been married in the Garfield Grand Hotel in Long Branch, New Jersey. I have made and read the above statement and swear that it is all true to the best of my knowledge and belief. Geraldine Gates. Wow. So apparently she changed her story later again, you know, and so she could do this book. Wow. She's yeah. just a work of art, isn't she? Yes. And I mean, if you go on this one webpage, I mean, he's like defending her saying, oh, they proved it, you know, and she's a con <laughs> or was a yeah. con. Yeah. It's not that hard to, you know, con people. Yeah apparently. Yeah. Well, and honestly, I mean, she and DeFeo were kind of well suited for each other because none of them knew what the truth was. Is she still alive or she passed away? She passed away in 2015. Okay. Wow. That's great. Her poor family. Like, I feel sorry for her kids. Yeah. You know, that's crazy. So, I mean, I saw on these forums, this back and forth with Peter and somebody claiming to represent his sister, Jane. Mm Mm-hmm. And stuff like, well, she's going to sue you. And, you know, this whole thing. He's like, well, go for it because she's lying. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah, it's crazy. Wow. Now, let's get away from the lies and move forward. Okay. Okay. What have you got for me, Denise? We're backward as the case may be. Now, Zelda mentioned some of the people earlier who I'll be discussing. So there may be some overlap. It's not intentional. It's just I'll be telling a different part of the story. And I've got to say, this was my first time researching an Italian family tree. Oh, yeah? And this family was very Italian. I I learned quite a bit along the way, even with a little help from a mutual friend of ours who has deep Italian heritage, Camille from Brooklyn, New York. Oh, 
I love Camille. Oh my we god, love Camille. She's so lovely. so. I went to her to ask a couple things because because a lot of the family was from Brooklyn and all this and Italian heritage and some things that were coming up. So she oh was yeah, a great Camille. Resource. This is right up Camille's alley. Yes. So as Zelda mentioned, Ronald DeFeo or Butch was the oldest child of his parents, and his parents were Ronald DeFeo Senior and Louise Briganti. Now, both Ronald Sr. and Louise were born in Brooklyn, almost exactly a year apart, with Ronald just 352 days older than his wife, (laughs) Um, him being born on November 16th, 1930. So do the math if you wish. (laughs) Um, Ron Sr. attended St. Francis Preparatory School, an all-boys Catholic school in Brooklyn. St. Francis was run by the Franciscan Brothers of Brooklyn, founded in 1858. In 1974, the school would move to Queens and went co-ed. Famous alums from his school include Joe Torrey, Julie Chen, Vince Lombardi, and Frank Serpico. Nice. Yeah. After high school, Ronald got a job working at an auto repair shop in Brooklyn. In April 1951, Ronald would marry Louise, a former model who may have once dated Mel Torme, if the stories <gasps> are to be believed. I love that. Oh my gosh, <laughs> I love Mel Torme. <laughs> Five months later, Butch was born. Oh, my. Yes. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, an enthusiastic bride and bridegroom can make it happen a little faster. Yes. Now, according to the author I mentioned before, Osana, Louisa's parents did not approve of Ronald Sr. and were not present for their wedding. Oh, that's so sad. So I don't know how true that is or not, but it's possible. Well, if he was a bullying asshole, I can see why they didn't want her, yeah. their daughter married to him. Well, and especially given who his family was, and we'll get into that as we go. Okay. Ronald rose up the ranks at his father-in-law's car dealership, Brigante Carl Buick, which was located on 800 Coney Island Avenue, eventually promoted to service manager by 1963, a position he would hold until his death. This would be the very same dealership he and Butch worked at. In 1965, this family decided to leave their small home in Brooklyn to find more space, and that's when they moved to Amityville, as Zelda described. It was an hour east by train from Brooklyn where he worked. Now, as a service manager, how could Ronald and Louise afford this home? In a 1986 interview, Butch claimed that his grandfather, Michael Brigante, paid the mortgage and often helped the family financially. And I can believe that. Mm -hmm. But I also think I know why they got such a bad reception from the neighbors. If this neighborhood really was very Irish, Mm -hmm. there was a bias against Italians. Oh, I can imagine. Yeah. I'm, I'm not, and that's not an excuse. It's just more, oh. It's a, it's a fact. Yeah. One of the things I find interesting, though, is you mentioned that the mom was a model. And mm-hmm. I saw a couple pictures of her as I was doing research. Mm-hmm. She was stunningly pretty. Yes, she was. She was so pretty. And all the kids were super cute, too. So I was just, I don't know, it just kind of struck me, you know. They were a good-looking family. Mm-hmm. And, you know, from the outside, it looked like this beautiful Catholic family that, you know, went to mm-hmm. church and knew how to pray the rosary and all that yeah. stuff. So, anyway, as you were saying. As the name implies, the family had Italian heritage, as I mentioned before. And But how Italian were they? Well, 100% from all that Ooh. I could tell. So, let's explore the family tree, starting with Butch's mother, Louise Marie Brigante. And as far as I can tell, Louise was the oldest of two children, her younger sibling by five years being Michael F. Brigante. Her parents were Michael Stefano Brigante and Angelina Calabrese. Michael Brigante was a second-generation immigrant. 
the third child of four born to his parents in January 1907 in Brooklyn. Michael had a fire in him to do well and be successful. So he worked hard to just do just that for his immigrant parents. Along the way, he met Angela Calabrese, another child of immigrants, also the third child in her family, although in her case, she was one of eight. I have to say us middle children need to stick together. You know, what's interesting, you say that both of my parents are middle children Mm -hmm. and both of my husband's parents are middle children. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. And we're both older, the oldest child in our families. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Huh. The couple got married on April 20th, 1929. Now, I just want to speak to something I saw on people's research and their trees on this family, is that I saw several people linking the wrong Michael and Angelina in trees. Mm. And it's easy to do. It really is. Um, You have to, in fact, I made a mistake that I discovered right yesterday as I was going through. It was a very subtle thing. I got the wrong Michael as their son. Okay. Type of thing. And then I'm like, oh. And it was because I was trusting something just as a quick hold, space holder. And I was going to come back to it. And I had forgotten to come back. But I did yesterday. So there you go. Anyhow, um, there was more than one Michael and Angela Brigante in New York. No. Yes. <laughs> in fact, there were three Michael Brigantes born around the same time. One in 1906, one in 1907, and one in 1910. And these three Michaels all married an Angela or Angelina. And lived in Brooklyn. Wow. It's all in the details, y'all. You have to look at all the details. Oh, my gosh. And the problem with the other Michael Brigantes versus the one I'm talking about is that it's highly doubtful that a Roman Catholic family would marry a year after their daughter was born. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that was when I first realized one I was chasing down just wasn't right. Because I'm like, why would they get married in 1932 when they had her in 1931? Mm -hmm. So I had to dig a little deeper and I made the correction. So back to what I was saying in the 1930 census, the couple lived at 328 First Street in Brooklyn with Michael working as a freight foreman. By 1940, they had their two children, Louise and Michael. Now the young Brigante family lived in the same building as Michael's parents, Joseph and Louisa. Michael's occupation was listed as an instructor for an automobile company, Hmm. which I found interesting. I'm like, what is that exactly? (laughs) Was he instructing on how to repair or how to drive? I I don't know. That's a good question. But Michael would make autos his career. By at least the mid-1940s, he would start working as a car salesman at Kings County Buick in Flatbush. As an aside, did you know my grandfather had a Dodge dealership? I did not know that. Yeah, this would have been in the like 40s and 50s. So, so he was an early salesman too. He was in the Midwest. Yeah. Cool. That's kind of fun. Okay. I didn't mean to interrupt. Go ahead. <laughs> now, Kings County Buick would change ownership and names in 1950 to Mid-County Buick. I found a lovely little snippet in the Brooklyn Eagle dated February 24th, 1952 about Michael. Michael Brigante receives a bronze plaque for his outstanding sales record at Mid-County Buick from Eugene Malice, president of the firm, largest Buick agency in Brooklyn. In the 20 months Mid-County has been operating, Brigante sold 468 new cars. Mm. So he was he was putting in a lot of work. Now, there was an article about a car theft in 1957, and Michael was described as the vice president of Mid-County at this point. By 1963, Brigante partly owned and operated the dealership, now known as Brigante Carl Buick, 
And that's literally when it changed hands was in 1963. Do you remember what also happened in 1963? Uh, no, my mind is blank. That's okay, because this is I, I wasn't expecting you to know. So you're good. That's when Ronald DeFeo Sr. got his promotion to service manager. Ah, yes. When I his did not know that. father-in-law became the boss. Okay. Coincidence? Hmm. Hey, you know, why have a business if you can't have patrimony? There you go. It's important to note that Brigante and DeFeo Sr. made friends at the local police force. I mean, that's a smart thing to do in business. Oh, it for sure. It guarantees some level of protection. Especially in New York. I mean... Yes. Now, in fact, I had a part-time job when I was in graduate school in Georgia, and it was out of Popeye's. And we gave free drinks and beverages to cops who would come in. And one day I'm like, why do we give them free drinks? And the manager's like, because it guarantees that they're going to come into my business and that people will see them there and they're less likely to rob me. Okay. And I'm like, oh, I had never thought of that. Every restaurant I've ever worked in, the cops always ate free. Yeah. And that's a large part of it. It could be that they are like, oh, go police, (laughs) you know, but I think a lot of it's more smart business. Yeah, I think it's a little bit of all that. So I found an article detailing their relationship with law enforcement and possible mob ties in Newsday, the Nashua edition on November 15th, 1974. There were none of the traditional earmarks of underworld killings, but DeFeo, they're talking about senior, was the nephew of Peter DeFeo, a 72-year-old captain in the Vito Genovese crime family. And then it, it talks about how, but, you know, they might might be, but it doesn't seem like it could be. Among Ronald DeFeo's closest friends are Edward Kiernan, past president of the New York City Patrolman's Benevolent Association, and now president of the International Conference of Police Associations, John Cassis, also past president of the association, and Edward Lecce, past president of the Nashua Patrolman's Benevolent Benevolent Association. Jeez. Nashua Patrolman's Benevolent Association. (laughs) Say that 10 times fast. (sighs) Yeah. Um, DeFeo supported police with fervor, and he won the friendship and admiration of many New York City policemen. He was particularly close to officers in Brooklyn, where he was service manager for Brigante Carl Buick, owned by his father-in-law. Until the last few years, the elder DeFeo and his father-in-law, Michael Brigante of Brooklyn, were active in the affairs of patrolmen's associations. DeFeo frequently attended their conventions, where he played softball with the members. And Brigante would buy tables for his whole family at their dinner dances. He would, and this is referring to DeFeo, he would help cops out with cars, Kiernan said. He would lend him a car if he, an officer, got his car wrapped. We had a car plan where members got cars at reduced rates. Cassie said he was interested in us and always wishing us luck. He was pro-police all the way. And I think this also gets to the heart of the case. They were motivated to solve the murder of their friend. Yeah. And I'm sure Michael Brigante was giving them extra pressure, going, you're my friend, you need to solve this. Well, and not to mention, let's face it, they probably had their eye on his son for quite a while, knowing that he was a troublemaker and Mm -hmm. knowing that there were problems in that family. Yeah. Michael Brigante's dealership would close in 1981. He passed away four years later in 1985 at the age of 78. His wife, Angela, would bury her last living child in 1990 when Michael Jr. died. Oh my gosh. Yeah. 
she lived to be 93, dying in 2000. Oh my gosh, that's why I don't want to live too long. <laughs> I mean, really, to see your entire family gone? You know, I'll tell you what, if my husband dies and you're still living and I'm a widow, let's get us and a couple of our gals and we'll be, have our own Golden Girls situation. Oh yeah, I'm already lining it up. I've got cousins lined up. We're going to have, we'll buy a whole practically, you know, assisted living home to house mm -hmm. all of our friends. And it's going to be, be awesome. so much fun. Yep. Okay. Michael's father was born Giuseppe Brigante to parents Raffaele and Anasi Brigante in Napoli, Italy in 1879. I love those names. He had at least one sister, Rose, but I only know about her because she also immigrated to the United States. But based on their age gap of 10 years, there's probably other siblings. Okay. On November 17th, 1890, at the age of 11, Giuseppe arrived in New York City at Ellis Island aboard the SS Neustria with his father and a, and a Carmine Brigante, age 45, possibly an uncle. While Giuseppe and presumably Carmine stayed, Raffaele would return to Italy. I struggled to find Giuseppe, who would Americanize his name to Joseph on the census in 1900 and 1910. However, I did find his marriage record to Michael's mother, Louisa Garone, also from Napoli. Louisa, daughter of Michael and Camilla Garone, came to America on the SSMs with $8 in her pocket and claimed she was meeting her brother. Oh, wow. Yeah. The ship departed Genoa on July 5th, 1900, arriving in New York City two weeks later. Joseph and Louisa married in Manhattan on July 24th, 1902. The next year, Joseph became a U.S. citizen in February. By June that same year, the couple had their first child, Agnes Giovannina, or Jenny. Next to follow was Raffaele, Michael, and Anthony. I love all of these names. Yeah. Sadly, Anthony died in infancy. Mm. In 1905, both of Joseph's parents arrived at Ellis Island after two weeks spent aboard the SS Cecilia in steerage, leaving their home in Padua, Italy, behind. They had $20 in plans to join their son. I have no idea when they died. Only that they did before 1920, since I was unable to find them on the 1910 census. I can't narrow it down any further. Louisa developed health issues leading to her death in October 1918, dying of chronic endocarditis. Ouch. But on, yeah, but honestly, since this was the time of the Spanish flu and, and this was a, the time where it was at crisis mode in New York City, mm -hmm. it makes me wonder if the endocarditis was related to a bout of the flu mm. since she yeah. was so young, dying at 40. Oh, my gosh. Joseph, a janitor for a local college, married six months later to Loretta Gramegna, a widow who worked at a battery factory. And I am so sorry if you're listening to this and I'm butchering the Italian last names. I'm doing what I can. Some, some things I was able to look up the pronunciations. Some words just aren't available to look up. So I'm just playing it by ear, people. So we should I'll have had Camille little... on here and have yeah. her like just say all the names. I should have contacted her and go, okay, help me with pronunciations. Yeah. <laughs> um, so he married Loretta, who had her own, who was a widow with three of her own children. The couple would have a daughter. Josephine in 1921. In 1944, Loretta died. Two years later, Joseph followed. Now we're going to go over to Angela Calabrese, Michael Brigante's wife. And this is the grandparents of Ronald DeFeo Jr. Okay. Again, just a quick reminder so people don't get too lost. I try not to put too many dates, guys, but sometimes it's impossible because there's... <laughs> yeah. It's just the way the story's flowing the best. And sometimes the families are big. 
Angela's family was from a different town in Italy, San Fele, but also southern Italy, or at least the Calabrese's were. Her mother, Ronald Jr.'s great-grandmother's origins in Italy are a bit of a mystery. Her mother was Maria Donato Dati, or Mary, born in 1883. According to the 1920 census, she immigrated to the U.S. in 1899. If so, she either knew Antonio Ton, or Tony Calabrese before coming, or they had a whirlwind romance because they married soon after her arrival. Hmm. Antonio made his way from San Fele in 1892, arriving in New York City on March 25th on the SS Alicia at the age of 15 with his father, stepmother, brother, and sister. We'll circle back to them in a bit. Seven years later, Antonio would marry new arrival Mary in June 1899. So she, he was 22, she was 16. In the 1900 census, the couple lived in Manhattan, or more specifically at 101 West Houston Street, the very edge of Greenwich Village and Soho today. As in, their building was on the south part of Houston. And if you know anything about New York City, Soho stands for south of Houston Street. So, of course, back then, this was not a trendy area as it is today. It was an area filled with Italian immigrants, many of whom attended one of two parishes, Our Lady of Pompeii or St. Anthony of Padua. Most likely, the Calabrese's attended St. Anthony of Padua because it was very close to their home less than 500 feet. When not at church, Antonio or Tony worked as a boot black, which was a shoe shiner, a job he would work until his death. Hmm. Now, Tony wasn't a very big man. In the World War II draft, he was listed as being only five foot and 120 pounds. Oh my goodness. Yes. Well, that explains why, because, you know, uh, Ron DeFeo Jr. was only five seven. Yeah, and a lot of his his um, ancestors were quite short. In 1904, Tony became a U.S. citizen, and by 1910, the family moved across the river to Brooklyn to live with his parents at 243 Hudson Avenue. One thing I did note in the 1910 census was that Tony was the only adult in the home able to speak English. The couple had eight children, with only two boys and no nuns. <laughs> As to, <laughs> I loved that's, writing that joke. That's a <laughs> lot of weddings to pay for. It is. I have and to you say. know they would want to. I mean, mm-hmm. that, that's a big thing, especially in Italian culture and mm-hmm. stuff. So, well, as, and it's interesting that you mentioned that his wife didn't learn how to speak English. And mm-hmm. that's actually really common in immigrant families because mm-hmm. women, if they have work outside the home, they're working with other immigrant women, usually Right. They're the same language, so they never, they're not forced to learn English the same way that the men are who are out there in jobs where they're usually interacting with more English speaking people. And that's the, very true. Only reason I know this is because my dad used to take in immigrants and it was like a real thing trying that's to really help. That's really cool that your dad did that. Yeah, actually, it was really cool. My dad has a very big heart. As soon as their children were of age, they worked helping to contribute to the family finances. One of Angela's brothers, DeFeo's granduncle, was Nicholas Edward Calabrese, born in 1919. He was the prime age to serve in World War II, and he did, enlisting in September 1941, even before the U.S. officially entered into the war. Nicholas was sent overseas to fight in his parents' home country, Italy. And I have a feeling a lot of Italian recruits were sent there because they knew the language. Mm-hmm. 
But, you know, I find interesting, and this is just a thought that came, you hear a lot about the Germans at the time and the Japanese being kind of separated and being looked at suspiciously. You don't hear as much about the Italians. Hmm. And I'm sure that might have happened, but I just find that interesting. Uh, What do you mean by, okay, can you repeat what you just said? Because I think it went over. So you know how the Japanese were put into camps Mm -hmm. and some Germans were, or Mm -hmm. at least they were highly suspicious of them. Mm -hmm. Did you, have you ever heard of anything about Italians going through the same thing? Well, I know there's a lot of Italian prejudice. um, Right. And, you know, like one-off attacks and things like that i don't think the government ever took anything yeah you know that's why i'm saying it's kind of interesting given mussolini Hmm. now but the italian prejudice had been there for decades at this point right yeah that's what there was nothing new there Mm -hmm. i don't think there's anything new because of world war ii but then did did mussolini actually attack any americans i mean i don't think that could be the difference yeah i don't think that italy was like as involved as much as they Mm -hmm. just kind of like you know turned over right yeah just random thoughts from my brain at the moment news came home in february 1944 nicholas was killed in action oh yeah on a casualty report i read it said his death his cause of death was due to artillery shell blast fragments and debris then i found the following in the brooklyn daily eagle on september 24th 1944 the headline reads, Borough Sergeant Wins Silver Star for Aid to Wounded. His bravery and coolness in going into a heavily mined area under enemy mortar, machine gun, and artillery fire, and along with another man evacuating seven American wounded, brought the Silver Star to a Brooklyn Air Force sergeant yesterday. The sergeant, Nicholas E. Calabrese, was among eight Brooklyn and Queens heroes honored in ceremonies at the Post Theater here attended by family members and relatives. A total of 19 Air Force men were given awards. Sergeant Calabrese's medal was presented to his father, Anthony. Wow. Yeah. So I did a quick bit of research while you were reading that. Mm -hmm. And it turns out that during World War II, 600,000 undocumented Italian immigrants in the United States were deemed enemy aliens and detained, relocated, stripped of their property, or placed under curfew. A couple hundred were even locked in internment camps. Oh my gosh. And apparently it just hasn't really been covered. It hasn't been. In fact, the story it's in the um San Francisco Gate uh magazine. Mm-hmm. It has a whole article on it about how um their the children and grandchildren of these Italians are trying to make this history known because it was so suppressed at the time it happened. Oh my goodness. Isn't that crazy? Yeah, I had no idea. I had no idea either. And they said, I'm glad I, 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 I'm glad I had that random thought. I, I'm glad you, now we know things, but yes. Joanne Chieti, deputy executive officer in the civil rights division of the U.S. Justice Department said, what happened to the Italians was based on wartime hysteria. We're trying to educate people so it won't happen again. This story needs to be told. Oh my goodness. Oh my gosh. Oh, and okay. So president Bill Clinton signed the wartime violation of Italian American civil liberties act. Um, when he was president. Oh my gosh. So there's like a whole thing. And it didn't really get covered in the news that much. No, nope, I sure would think didn't. I would have remembered that. Oh my gosh. That's just crazy. Wow. Oh my God. Like it never even would occur to me. Um, but there were, it was just like we treated the Japanese. Um, mm-hmm. 
That's crazy. In California, 10,000 alone fishing boats were seized. Thousands of fishermen lost their jobs. Non-citizens could not travel more than five miles from home without a permit. They had a curfew. Um, after eight, I think the only difference between this and the Japanese is that it said non-citizens. Well, apparently they actually swept up some citizens in the middle of all of this. Oh, I'm sure, but but the vast I majority mean, of them were uh, the 600. Vast majority of the 600,000 were not citizens. Yeah, whereas with the Japanese, they didn't care if they were a citizen or not. Right. Exactly. That's the only difference, though. Oh, my gosh. Wow. That's just nuts. And they weren't illegal immigrants. They just were regular immigrants. So they were legal aliens. They Mm -hmm. just hadn't become citizens yet. Right. Exactly. Oh, my gosh. That's crazy. Wow. Mary Donato Calabresi, Butch's great-grandmother, died before he was born in 1950 at age 66. I was unable to find a death record for Tony, All I know was that it happened after Mary died since he was mentioned in her obituary as being alive. Wow. Tony's father, so Anthony Calabrese's father, which is great-great-grandfather, was Vito Calabrese Sr. He sometimes went by Victor. I love the name Vito. I do too. Like, Um, it does, you know, stereotypically sounds like someone who'll break your knees. Yes, it does. (laughs) And well, there's another Vito in the story we'll get to eventually. Okay. Vito was born in 1839, but I'm not sure where in Italy, where, you know, where he was born and raised. It could be the same location as his son and likely is, but I have no confirmation. Although I do have a hint that we'll come to in a minute or so. Vito was the son of Antonio and Margarita Calabrese. He married first Margaret Sisto sometime before their son, Tony's birth in 1877. They would have at least three children, Tony, Vito Jr., and Angela Rosina. I love these names. I I do too. I love them so much. I suspect Margarita died in childbirth or soon after the birth of their youngest um, in October 1886, as Vito, 48 at the time, married 24-year-old Angela Maria Pieri in 1887. Now, Vito may have worked as a barber for a short time, but by 1905, he was also working as a boot black with his son, Tony. Vito died in March 1912 of bronchopneumonia at the age of 73. Oh, and I had quite the find. Are you ready for this? Mm-hmm. Vito had a will. <gasps> I love it when that happens. I know. It, and I, It's just so exciting. So I'm going to read parts of his will. I give and bequeath unto my executor here and after named all my real and personal estate, wherever situated to have and to hold and trust and pay over unto my beloved wife, Angela Maria Calabrese, all the profits, interest and income from said fund during her natural life. So basically he wanted um, the, and you probably could speak to this better than I can, but from what I'm getting from this is he was wanting his executor to put funds into a trust so that that could take care of his wife. Mm -hmm. Okay. Upon the death of my wife, Angela Maria Calabrese, it is my will. And I give and bequeath unto my son, Antonio Calabrese, the sum of $1,400. Nice. Yeah. This is 1912. That's a nice big pocket of change. Mm -hmm. So he comes over and he's doing quite well for himself, Vito, before his death. That's what I take from this. I also want to mention it was not uncommon for men to put money in trust for their wives because Mm -hmm. they wanted to make sure that if the wives remarried, their children still inherited. 
um, that's also still in use today. I have so many thoughts on that. So many thoughts. I won't get into them here. Mm -hmm. It was also sort of a way to evade taxes, not evade, um, lessen taxes, because for a while there, the property, the inheritance taxes were really, really high and you didn't get an exclusion for your spouse like you do today. And so if they put it into a trust, it would avoid some of those inheritance taxes until it was distributed to the kids. So anyway, just a little aside there. I give and bequeath to my daughter, Rosina Calabrese, the sum of $200. That's not fair. I know. Well, it's a daughter. Well, yeah. (laughs) Um, I give and bequeath to my son, Vito Calabrese, the 10 shares of the Societa Cooperativa Avellanis. And then I hereby appoint Antonio Calabrese, my son, as my executor. Let's talk about the Cooperativa Avellanis. How do you spell that? A-V-I-G. L-I-A-N-E-S-E. And I actually went to this website. How do you pronounce? And it came with um, Aviano. And I just changed it to ease. Huh. It might be Aviani Calabrese. So it might be Aviani Nisi. Hmm. I don't know. So if I, again, if I'm butchering it, let me know. and I'll fix. <laughs> okay. Now, of course, you know me. As soon as I saw the Cooperativa Avianis, I had to know more. Basically translated, it was the Avianis Cooperative Society. The name indicated where the family was from, which would be Aviano, Italy. Ah, okay. And Aviano is located in Potenza, the same province of, as San Feli. Okay. Anyhow, this society was formed around 1903, I think. It was formed as an aid society for Italian immigrants. So to try and learn more, this is when I turned to our friend Camille. And she even added me to a group of New Yorkers in Brooklyn from that area who might be able to help me. Oh, nice. And I asked questions and got a little information, but not as much as I had hoped. (laughs) But what I did learn, because I was trying to understand what the shares meant, and nobody knew that part. But what I did learn is that the society helped other Italian immigrants financially with their small businesses and real estate. They would help with loans and even provide interim housing for new families new immigrant families that came to New York. And the society still exists in some limited locations. It's pretty much kind of run out. But there is a Facebook group. Oh, fun. For the Avianis, the people from Aviano. That's so cool. I thought that was very cool. So, so you know, Vito starts his own business. He probably got help from the society. Mm-hmm. And that's why he probably did so well. And then he went and he gave back. Mm-hmm. And that's how a lot of those Italian immigrants mm-hmm. managed their time and managed to survive New York City. Yeah, those mutual aid societies were all over the U.S. Um, mm-hmm. Because, you know, these were, this was also kind of the start of like the life insurance industry, the health insurance mm-hmm. industry. Um, and basically the shares that you bought into was kind of like, okay, they we're pooling our money together and then it's going to go help people when they need help. And so you oh, could cool. apply for a grant basically or a low interest loan or stuff like that. Cause remember back then Italians couldn't just go to the bank and borrow money. Oh gosh. No. You know? Um, and most, in fact, a lot of people couldn't, it was basically, if you were a white man, you probably could as long as you had land or something behind you, but women, immigrants, no. Mm-mm. Yeah. And back then they were not looked at as white. Right. Exactly. At all. Mm-mm. Nope. So, you know, they had their own issues with bigots mm-hmm. and names Yep. That some people still will use to this day. Which, mm-hmm. mm. Okay, so that is the maternal line. Now it's time to tackle the paternal line. Ronald DeFeo Sr. was the son of Rocco DeFeo 
and Antoinette, or as she was known, Annette Bianco. And he was born in November 1930, just over a year after his parents married. A sister would follow him five years later, then a brother four years after that. And his parents obviously outlived their son. And they didn't die until the early 80s. Mm. Butch's grandmother, Annette Bianco, was born in 1906 in Napoli, Italy, the same area the Brigantes were from. Then, on January 9, 1912, her father, Angelo, originally from Salerno, left Italy for America on the SS Santa Anna with $30. Fifteen days later, he arrived with plans to join his uncle, Vincenzo Cosa, at 50 Spring Street in Little Italy. Angelo was described as being five foot three, fair complected, with brown hair and chestnut colored eyes. Then almost 10 months later, Annette, just six years old, boarded the SS Duca de Genova with her mother, Felice Canella Bianco, and sisters Anna and Catherine. They had $30 with them as well and planned to join Angelo on Spring Street. And this is where, where they talk about chain migration where the one would go ahead and then they would send for the other because you had to have somebody you were going to. Right. You had to have a sponsor. Yep. The ship arrived in New York on November 12th, but Felice and her children would be detained until Angelo could pick them up. Like the Brigantes, the family made their home in Manhattan, but instead of the village, they went to 37 Spring Street in Little Italy. Well, Little Italy at the time has shrunk quite a bit since then to now it's just a three block area. At the time, though, it was much larger, taking up a 30-block section of the city. And while Little Italy was not the only settlement of Italians in New York City, it was considered the poorest. By the time the Biancos arrived, there were approximately 10,000 Italians living in Little Italy. At the Bianco address in the 1915 New York State Census, I found that the Biancos were just one of 50 families living in the five-story walk-up on Spring Street. Hmm. Wait. Five story, five story yeah. walk up. Yes. Okay. I'm short of breath just thinking about it. Yes. <laughs> and, you know, and a lot of times on that first floor weren't apartments necessarily. It was usually like a business or something. The building they lived in was built in 1900 and still stands today. Currently, there are 15 units in it, mainly consisting of studios and one bedroom apartments ranging from 500 to 650 square feet. So imagine in 1915 living in this building with 10 families totaling 50 people, by my count. And each room, I mean, each apartment was 500-ish square feet? Well, that's what they are now. That's 15 units. This one, they had like 10. Okay. So it was a little, probably a little bigger, but not by much. Yeah, we're still only talking maybe 600 square feet. Yeah. With whole families in there. Yes. Dang. With whole families. And this is a family of five. So I can't, you know... I guess say too much because the house I grew up in, my parents of course had, you know, me and all my brothers and it was mm-hmm. 800 square feet. And I'm like, no wonder my mom was half crazed the entire time we were growing up. Yeah. But was your house separate or was it an apartment no, building? It was separate. Thank you, Jesus. Yeah. We had so a little this is yard. Like, so these are some of the early tenement buildings at mm-hmm. the time. They were usually from what I understand, dark, mm-hmm. crowded, the hallways, you know, it was just a whole bunch of stuff. In 1914, and then again in 1916, two children were added to the family. So another son and another daughter. And by the way, in 1918, Angelo, an electrician, registered for the World War I draft. And I found that he listed himself as having a deformity of the left arm. Interesting. I'm not sure what the deformity was or how it happened. 
you know, was he born with it? Did it happen as an accident at work? But I did find it interesting. Did he get drafted? No, but he died in December 1919 at the age of 38. Oh. And I'm guessing, based giving on the time, probably the Spanish flu. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. I mean, the crisis had passed in New York City at that point, but was the virus was still there. Now Felice had to support her family on her own. Not an easy task for women at the time, and especially not an immigrant woman from Italy. It's probably this change in circumstances that made it impossible to find the Calabrese family on the 1920 census. Then, in March 1924, Felice, at age 46, died. Her children were orphans. In 1925, I found the children living together, still at 37 Spring Street. Oldest daughter, Anna, worked as a cashier for Lord & Taylor, and Annette worked in a millinery. And Annette was... Um, was Butch's grandmother. I'm just trying to... By 1930, the oldest three daughters were married or getting married. Anna Bianco married Danny DeFeo, Rocco DeFeo's brother, in 1930. Catherine married Nicholas Mato in 1928. As she was more established, I imagine that's why the two youngest siblings lived with her and her family. Annette would marry Rocco DeFeo, a man who worked as a printer, in 1929. Can I ask you a question about Annette? Mm -hmm. Was yes. she sometimes known as Antoinette? Yes, I said that at the beginning. Okay, I missed that. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. It was Antoinette, and she was often referred to as Annette. Okay, thank you. Mm -hmm. Now, Rocco, Butch's grandfather, was not an immigrant like his wife Annette, though he was the son of immigrants. Rocco was the seventh child of ten born to his parents. Um, and Rocco must have had a good job because I found a ship manifest for Rocco and Annette who went to Bermuda for their honeymoon. Oh, nice. Yeah. They were doing okay for themselves. They were. Once they returned home, they set up their home in Brooklyn, where they would raise their three children, Ronald Sr., Phyllis, and John. Like the Biancos and the Brigantes, the DeFeo family was from Napoli. Giovanni DeFeo, son of Giuseppe DeFeo and his wife Luisa, and great-grandfather of Butch, was born in 1875 in Napoli. According to the census records, John, as he became known, immigrated to the U.S. in 1892, at the age of 17. In 1896, at the age of 20, he married 17-year-old immigrant Maria Giovanna Caluzzi. John wanted the best for his family, and like many immigrants, he worked hard to get just that. And it wasn't easy. In 1900, John and Maria with three young children lived with Maria's family. There were eight people living in a small space at 230 Mulberry Street in Little Italy. The building that stands there today was built in 1900, another five-story walk-up but this was likely even tighter than the one we just discussed. Today in that building, there are 20 apartments in the building, all small one bedrooms. Wow. Back then, there were 19 families, totaling 100 people crammed into the building. Oh my gosh. Yeah. By 1910, their living situation improved somewhat. Now they had their own apartment at 219 Mott Street, but their family had grown by six. <laughs> So, their family of 11 crammed into a slightly bigger apartment in another five-story walk-up with only 15 families, though. Mm. And John was now working at a restaurant. In fact, the restaurant was in the same building where they lived. Oh, wow. In, 19, in the 1915 New York census, I found that four of their children, the four oldest, were working. From oldest to youngest, I'll, I'll tell you what they did. Louisa and Lucia were waste makers. Joseph worked in printing. And Daniel worked as a helper at a lunchroom. Oh. The rest of the children, including Rocco, were attending school. Oh, I love to hear that. Yes. 
Then, in 1919, much like the Bianco family, the patriarch John died. Again, a likely victim of the Spanish flu. He was 43. Widow Maria had six children under 18 at home, four under 14. Wow. I do want to talk briefly about the Spanish flu and how it affected those in New York City, particularly those like John DeFeo, who lived in a tenement filled with people. Hmm. The Spanish flu, as we all know, was a worldwide pandemic. Unlike our current crisis with COVID-19, no one was asymptomatic. If you got it, you got it, and you had symptoms within 24 hours. Wow. And because of this, it spread even more rapidly than the coronavirus. The crisis started there in August 1918, after the arrival of a ship, the Bergensfjord, reached the harbor from Norway. On board were 21 people infected with the flu, 11 crew and 10 passengers. Medical personnel met the ship and isolated the people infected, taking the most serious to the hospital. So they were prepared. They were ready. Mm -hmm. But more ships would come in with those ill from the Spanish flu. To try to stop the flu from spreading, the Port of New York was put under quarantine in mid-September. However, they were not the only port on the East Coast, and the flu didn't start in Europe. Mm -hmm. So the crisis time of the epidemic in New York was from September of 1918 to November of 1918. And during that time period, it resulted in the deaths of over 20,000. Mm. But again, people would still catch the Spanish flu after that time frame. It's just that's when the most died. But there was more going on that needs to be discussed. You see, 1918 also happened to be at the end of the peak period of immigration coming into New York City. And most of the immigrants coming in from that time were from Southern and Eastern Europe, from countries like Italy. One challenge to face was hygiene and sanitation. And I've seen it written that some immigrants didn't have the same standards as American citizens. But I don't know how true that is. I mean, I would think that it wasn't as much standards, but rather the ability to be as sanitary and hygienic as possible when living in close quarters and in these tenement buildings. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just, yeah. <laughs> if they had the opportunity, I think they probably would have been more hygienic. Mm-hmm. When word of the epidemic hit the U.S., suspicions grew around the immigrants in part because of rumors that it was the Italians who brought the flu with them. They didn't. Wow. This influenza started at an army base in Kansas. Mm. I believe it was at Fort Riley. Yeah, that's what I heard too. However, the backlash against Im- Italian immigrants was unexceptional this time though. You see, the Spanish flu did not discriminate. It affected the rich and the poor, the immigrants and the citizenry. Additionally, the Spanish flu hit the Italian immigrants, particularly Little Italy, hard with higher death rates than native-born population. Mm -hmm. It's likely this was caused by the close living conditions and a culture where family and friends visited the ill Mm -hmm. and didn't trust American doctors. And I'm sure that distrust came from a couple sources. One is that a lot of Southern Italian peasants believed that illness could be caused by sorcery, and they relied on folk healers. But also, they had faced backlash from Americans for being Italian. They were called dirty. Mm Yep. I wouldn't trust that person. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I just had to go and, and just touch on that because these are not the only two in this family in New York who died of the Spanish flu. There were others. It's still just so tragic because we could have learned from this and, you know, headed off most of the pandemic that we're in right now. But we don't learn because we're dumb. Well, I have theories on how that happened in part. <laughs> we started focusing so much on let's teach them math and science And we ignored history. Mm, Yep. And spelling, if you can tell by Facebook. Yeah. (laughs) Let me tell you a little about Maria Giovanna Coluzzi, or Jenny as she was known, Giovanni or John DeFeo's wife. Mm -hmm. 
With her husband's death, their son, Daniel, took over the restaurant. And I want to mention that I believe they managed this restaurant, if not outright owned it at 219 Mott Street. This is not something I can verify without physically going through records in New York City, though. Okay. In the 1920 census, Luisa and Lucia had their own families, but lived in the same building on Mott Street as their mother. Joseph still worked as a printer. Now three more children were working. Peter as a drug clerk at a drugstore with brother Rocco as an assistant drug clerk. And Conchetta working as an underwear examiner. I have to think she worked at a factory I making love underwear. That. I think so. We would hope. <laughs> Sometime between 1920 and 1930, the family would move to Brooklyn. Although a few of the older kids, now adults, stayed in Manhattan. Their home in Brooklyn was at 1853 62nd Street. And according to the census, it was valued at $9,000. The DeFeos had done quite well for themselves. So I want to talk about some of Rocco's siblings. So these would be the grand aunts and uncles of Butch. Okay. Lucia, or Lucy as she went by, DeFeo, was the second oldest child of John and Jenny, born in 1898. Thirteen days after her father died, Lucy married Pascal Patrici or as he was called, Patsy. And Patsy was a bartender at a cafe. The couple would remain in Manhattan, specifically Little Italy, even as Lucy's family moved to Brooklyn. Patsy immigrated from the Potenza province in Italy, the same province the Caluzzi's were from, on the SS Louisiana, arriving at the end of November in 1907, when he was around 16. He would serve in World War I for the United States before marrying Lucy. By 1930, the couple would have two children and live at 25 Spring Street, what was still part of Little Italy at the time. Not only that, but Patsy owned and operated a restaurant called Patrice's. Now, if you believe some of their ads, Patrice's was opened at 98 Kinmare Street in 1906. Mm. Now, it could be that the building was the cafe where Patsy worked as a bartender and he eventually bought it and turned it into Patrice's. But since he didn't arrive until 1907, I don't think he opened, it was opened as Patrice's unless it was a cousin or something who owned it before him or brother or something. Patrice's was a very successful restaurant, enabling Patsy and Lucy to send both of their children to college and giving them the ability to make several trips to and from Italy. Mm. The restaurant became a favorite location for Charlie Lucky Luciano, head of the Genovese crime family. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah. During his prime, John Gotti could be found eating lunch there every Wednesday. Hmm. But it wasn't only mafioso who came to Patrice's. Authors, celebrities, sports figures, they all were there. Their son, Daniel Patrice, would continue operating the restaurant until he passed it to his son, Daniel Jr. Jr. sold it in 1995 to Arnold Magliaccia, who renamed it Nolita's. Today... It is a Japanese restaurant. Oh. <laughs> I mean, I like I Japanese food, but I was really rooting for it to still be around. I know. Now, as I mentioned earlier, Daniel DeFeo married Anna Bianco, sister of Rocco's wife, Annette. It also seems that he took over his father's restaurant for a time. But a lot would change between his wedding in 1930 and the 1940 U.S. Census, where I found him listed as an inmate at the Rockland State Hospital, a mental asylum, in Orangetown, New York. Mm. 
While he was at the asylum, Anna lived with her sister, Annette DeFeo, and her family. But I don't know what happened to them afterwards. Mm. But I know he died in the 60s. Mm. Now, Rocco's older sister, Conchetta, but known as Connie, was just 18 months older than him. In 1925, she married Nicholas Santagata, a stock trader. Found this article in the Brooklyn Times Union on October 30th, 1935. Four bootleg sugar men convicted. Four men were convicted by a jury in federal court last night on an indictment charging conspiracy to avoid properly reporting to the Federal Alcoholic Control Authorities the disposition of 1,500,000 pounds of crude sugar which the government intimated was diverted into bootleg channels in New York and New Jersey. Uh-oh. You know what happens with bootleg sugar? Oh, yeah. Becomes alcohol. Yeah. That's funny. There were two counts in the indictment, the first charging that the four men and others indicted with them conspired to defraud, and the second alleging that they failed to make proper report on the disposition of the sugar. Two of the men convicted, Alexander Westerland and Nicholas Santagata, so Connie's husband, were found guilty on both counts. Mm. Mm-hmm. Santagata was sentenced to four months in the penitentiary on each of the counts, the sentences also to run concurrently, and was fined $400 on the second count. Wow. Herman Smith was found guilty only on the second count, as was Frank Aquilino, owner of the trucking business. Now, it was contended by the government during the trial that Turner Brothers raided one of the largest sugar brokerage firms in the world, acquired, well, you know, what's interesting is this number is different than the first number, but yeah, acquired 1,400,000 pounds of raw crude sugar from refiners ostensibly for distribution among wholesale grocers in New Jersey, but the sugar was instead diverted to other interests. It is alleged to have been distributed through the S&W Sugar Company and to have been trucked by Aquilino and Smith. Wow. Now, Frank Aquilino, mentioned in the article, was a soldier in the Genovese crime family. He was also the brother of Connie's sister-in-law, Nancy. This leads me to believe that Nicholas Santagata was also a soldier for the Genovese family. And we'll get more into these family ties with Conchetta and Rocco's brother, Ronald DeFeo's granduncle, Peter DeFeo, in just a bit. But before that, we do that, one more sibling of Rocco's to discuss. Rocco's younger sister, by 17 months, Rose or Rosa, married Robert Bobnick in Brooklyn in 1936. They had a baby boy the next year, Robert Jr., but their marriage would be short, not because they wanted it to be. Robert Sr. died in October 1938 of tuberculosis. Mm-hmm. 11 months later, Rosa died. Oh, that's so sad. Yeah. Her primary cause of death was tuberculosis and acute cardiac dilation with a contributory cause of cerebral hemorrhage. Oh, my God. Yeah. After their death, Robert Jr. would live with his grandmother, Jenny DeFeo. One interesting note, I found Connie and Nicholas living at the same address as Rosa and Robert in the 1940 census. Oh, wow. So I wonder if they were living with them at the time of their death as well. Yeah. Now we get to talk about the granduncle, the one from the mafia, Peter DeFeo. I recently discovered there's a lot of misinformation out there about Peter DeFeo. Most of this has been found in books 
and I can't do much about that. But I stumbled on a website that had some wrong information, a website claiming to be experts on the New York Mafia. So I decided I should let them know what they had wrong and why. I mean, and what they had wrong wasn't like huge stuff. It was just a small couple of little details on his background. And they responded by telling me that there was no way Peter DeFeo was related to Ronald DeFeo Jr. Those were just stories to encourage newspaper sales. Yeah. Okay, then. As if Ronald murdering his whole family wasn't enough to sell newspapers. Yeah, seriously. I mean, anyhow, on Peter's Wikipedia page, the wrong parents were listed. I I corrected it. (laughs) Additionally, I saw several places claim that Peter was the brother of Frank Aquilino, the man we just discussed Mm -hmm. in that incident with um, Connie's husband, Nicholas. So let me clear up any misinformation. If anyone has any further proof or that that I've made an error in some way, I'll be happy to correct it and I'll do so here. So as you mentioned um, earlier, Zelda, Ronald DeFeo put the blame on the mafia, in particular this hitman. He would also blame his granduncle, Peter DeFeo, a capo or captain for the Genovese crime family, and saying that it's because of that connection that this person came and killed their family, you know, as retribution and blah, 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 blah. From what I know of the mafia, though, and that used to be one of my fascinations (laughs) back in the day, killing a whole family is not a thing. Right. With them. Mm But I do believe Butch shot everyone in the way he did in the hopes that police would believe it to Mm -hmm. be a mob hit. Yeah, because it looked like execution style. Yeah. Peter was the fifth child of John and Jenny DeFeo, older brother of Rocco, and Rocco being, again, the grandfather of Butch. He was born in New York in March 1902. As I mentioned earlier, at 18, he was working as a drugstore clerk. In 1919, the year prior... The 18th Amendment was passed, enacting prohibition of alcohol-based libations. It was a sad day for many in, in, in across the country. <laughs> and this in itself would lead to the rise of the of Cosa Nostra, the Sicilian Mafia. Now, don't misunderstand. The Italian Mafia existed in some form before 1919, as early as 1869 in New Orleans. And it wasn't just Italians who had crime families. There were the Irish like the Dead Rabbits and the Westies. And there was Jewish-American mob, like the Yiddish Black Hand and the Eastman Gang. Mm-hmm. One of the earliest gangs in New York City was the Five Points Gang, with members of varying backgrounds, mainly Italian, but some Jewish, Polish, and even Irish. The Five Points Gang operated from the 1890s into the 1920s, but eventually the Italian Mafia would take over. Some former members of the Five Points Gang became leaders in the Mafia, like Luciano, Al Capone and Meyer Lansky. Hmm. Now, with Prohibition, the rise of the Italian Mafia started to establish more power. And while living on Mott Street with his family, Peter joined in boot- bootlegging activities. And it's likely he was running around with Vito Genovese, Luciano, both only five years older than him, and other future Mafia. A quick side note, Vito Genovese was from the same area of Italy as the DeFeo family. Interesting. Yep. In 1922, a man by the name of Joe the Boss Masseria became head of the Morello crime family, one of the oldest crime families in New York City operating in East Harlem, extending down into lower Manhattan. One of his lieutenants was Luciano, Lucky Luciano, who would order his hit. So Luciano would order the hit to somebody to kill Masseria in 1931. 
And once the hit was put out, Luciano took over. And the crime family became known as the Luciano crime family because the head of the family was always the name of the family at the time. And that would be what was known as from 1931 to 1957 when it would become the Genovese crime family. And that happened after a few power moves, so making Vito Genovese the Don. Now, Peter DeFeo was part of the Vito Genovese crew before he became the boss. Okay. In 1934, Peter demonstrated his loyalty by joining Capo Mike Miranda and three others in the murder of Ferdinand the Shadow Boccia, who found himself on bad terms with the Genovese crew. Some, I think it involved some embezzlement of funds. Okay. You don't steal from the mob. <laughs> yeah, he did, and he did not survive that. DeFeo and Genovese would be indicted for his murder. Vito left the U.S. for Italy to avoid the charges, where he stayed until 1945. DeFeo hid from the police at a resort hotel in Tanana Lake, New York. I think that's how you pronounce it. By this time, Luciano was running his family from prison because Luciano got thrown in jail. Um, since Vito was in Italy, Luciano appointed Frank Casello as the acting boss. Luciano was eventually deported to Italy in 1946. And that, that's a whole lot of story for another time. <laughs> wow. Maybe not maybe a different podcast. But the short form is he helped. He, the U.S. asked him for help during World War II. Mm-hmm. He claimed he gave it to them and then they deported him. Oh, wow. So the deal didn't go quite the way he was hoping. Now, once Vito was back in New York, he wanted his power back, his area, but no one wanted to give it back to him. So to make a long, very long story short, after making a series of moves in 1957, Vito ordered Vincent Gigante to kill Costello. But Costello merely had a superficial wound. Gigante failed. Mm. Um, however, the attempt on his life did motivate Costello to retire, and Genovese took over the family. Two years after the takeover, Vito was sent to prison, where he would run the family until his death in 1969. Mm. Now, Vito's rise to boss led to Peter DeFeo's promotion in the family to capo, and that means captain. Even before his promotion, Peter was considered a big man in Little Italy and was often referred to as Mayor of Little Italy. Ah. One of the businesses he ran was Ross Trucking, one of the very same trucking company involved in the arrest of Connie's husband and Frank Aquilino. And FYI, um, Ross Trucking had an exclusive contract to truck all bananas in the New York area. Oh, nice. So... After Genovese died in 1969, many thought that DeFeo would become head of the family. Instead, that mantle was passed to Philip Vinny Squint Lombardo. Although the family hid him as the boss by creating front bosses to confuse the police. Hmm. So they basically have a talking head that they thought was the boss, but really wasn't and all that. Peter DeFeo would not avoid arrest, though. In October 1965, he was arrested with six others. After having a conference at Lombardi's, which, by the way, has the best pizza. (laughs) They're the original. Yeah. Um, To discuss family business. He and the others were charged with consorting for unlawful purposes. Interestingly enough, Peter's address was listed as 98 Kimmer Street, the same address as Patrice's, his sister Lucy's restaurant. Hmm. 
In May 1968, he was indicted on charges of conspiring in a mortgage kickback racket with two others. The racket involved borrowing $2.5 million from a Teamster Union pension fund to construct a hotel near LaGuardia Airport. Wow. Mm-hmm. And by the way, he was never convicted on any of the charges he was indicted for. I am shocked. Yeah, I'm sure you are. In 1970 and 1971, Peter would have to testify in Washington, D.C. to the Joint Legislative Committee of Crime Investigation at, in Congress. Peter, like all good mafiosos, took the fifth. And that's just a few of the things he was involved with. Wow. He held a lot of power and he was one of those mafia guys that you didn't want to get on the bad side. So I find it very fascinating that Butch would blame his grand uncle, maybe not directly, but even to the side, you know, to, mm-hmm. for the murder. Yeah. Maybe he thought because he was family, that would be his protection. And maybe Rocco, his grandfather, stood up for him. I don't know. Well, but he didn't blame his uncle for the murder. Not directly, but he implied yeah. that it was yeah. really, oh, that's true. He was kind of saying it was because of his uncle, but not. Right. Like they were involved in these mysterious gang things. And it was some sort of revenge thing, which is nuts. Yeah. It was nuts. It was so nuts. Ugh. So that that's just a little bit what he was in. I could, you know, that could be like a whole like series if you were to go into, you know, what which we're not doing. Um, in 1981, <laughs> um, Vincent Gigante became the head of the family. Two other capos started taking over DeFeo's territory little bit by little bit, kind of nudging him out. And that took away a lot of DeFeo's power. So then there was a dispute over who controlled a specific carpenters union in the Bronx, Peter DeFeo or one of these other capos. And Gigante settled it by giving control to the other capo. Oh, lovely. Yeah. Peter retired soon after that. He died in 1993 at the age of 91. Wow. Now I have one last note. I did find one consistency between most of the families. A good majority of them were all buried at the same location the same cemetery, Hmm. Holy Cross Cemetery in Brooklyn. Other notable people buried there are Diamond Jim Brady, a railroad magnet, suffragette Lucy Burns, several congressmen and a former New York City mayor, and Willie Sutton Jr. Really? Yes. That's interesting. And that is the family tree of Ronald Joseph DeFeo Jr., Wow, I am ready for a drink. How about you? <laughs> I mean, yeah. I mean, it's a lot. That family, the Tefeo family, I think most of them were all connected to the mob in some way. Mm-hmm. And it wouldn't surprise me if Ronald Sr. wasn't somehow. Oh, yeah. With all his involvement with the police and the police unions and stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, because exactly. they don't actually have a shiny history in all of this. So... Yeah, I would not be shocked. And if he was abusive, I mean, I think that explains some of that. But I can see where Peter could have gotten drawn into this, though, as well. Because, you know, they had this restaurant on Mott Street, which is really kind of the center of Little Italy at the time. And Mm -hmm. I... I believe, I mean, you would have... You would want to pay for protection. Mm -hmm. 
And one of the best, best ways to get protection is get involved yourself. Well, I mean, it's not a whole lot different than how gangs operate today. I mean, right. you just, you grow up with them. They're the guys with the money that they're flashing around the neighborhood mm-hmm. and little boys think it looks exciting. And yeah, then, and it seems like that's where the power is. And that's where, you know, how the kids are sucked in and it hasn't changed a lot over a hundred years, you know? Nope. It hasn't. Yeah. So that one was, that was interesting. I mean, I didn't see anything, anything about ghosts in any of the family. So, <laughs> you know, it was a lot more glamorous than I thought it would be, <laughs> you know, which I went 1940s cars and all of that. It was very exciting. So are you reading or watching anything right now? Um, you know, honestly, I'm so addicted to TikTok. And um, did I tell you there's this one I'm following uh, about baby girl and yeah, Mr. You Turtle? Yeah, you about that one. Yeah. So I'm still addicted. That has not changed. Um, <laughs> it has also spread out to the woman who does news under her desk, which I find absolutely fascinating. She literally crawls under her desk and it's like, okay, here's what's happening in the news today. <laughs> And I'm just I haven't like, seen that one. Oh yeah. Okay. I'll send her one of her videos. Send okay. her one of her videos. Cause she's just like so much fun. And then, um, gosh, just waiting. I mean, we're at 33 days till the premiere of the wheel of time. And so I'm prime. So I am counting down the moments I've already taken off the 19th for work and blocked <laughs> off the evening of the 18th because it's, so it starts at Greenwich Mean Time, midnight Greenwich Mean Time on the 19th, mm-hmm. which we all feel means it'll be eight o'clock, you know, American time. Right. Eastern. And I'm like, okay, I got to block off that whole evening because I don't know if it's going to start at eight or midnight and I need to be prepared for whatever comes. So. And I, yeah. I still plan to read the book, but I haven't gotten there. Things have gotten, you've been busy lately. Yeah. And I'm having problems just reading the books I have. <laughs> No, I understand. And this is a pretty long book. And the series itself is like 14 books. So but I decided I was going to take on Dune first by Frank Herbert. Okay, because that movie's coming out this coming weekend. Yeah. Then I realized I had all these library books that I hadn't returned and <laughs> I still had checked out. And I'm like, well, maybe I can finish those and then I'll finish Dune. And now I'm like, <sighs> that's so funny. I, what I need to do is write down the books I checked out, return them. Mm hmm. Finish Dune, then go back and check them out <laughs> after I read The Wheel of Time. Or, I mean, Eye of, um, the first book is Eye of the, Eye of the, the first book in The Wheel of the Time? Eye of the, Eye of the World. Yeah. Yeah. So. Well, speaking of which, that reminds me, I need to read a book for work. Um, we are, I am on a book club for diversity, access, and inclusion, and we're mm-hmm. reading the book Being Human, uh, mm-hmm. by Julia Human, uh, H-E-U- m-a-n-n who is a disability rights advocate mm-hmm. and um she was one of the people who when they did the disability rights protest at san francisco back in the late 60s early 70s mm-hmm. where they were yanking people out of their wheelchairs and stuff she was at that one she was one of the people who organized that and so she has a long history of disability rights advocacy so we're that's our book club and i'm like i need to read that because our first book club discussion on this book is on thursday so i need to read it between now and thursday so put down the tiktok shh <laughs> how dare you i actually i have to set a timer when i'm on tiktok because the time really does just float away it does so if i don't set a timer then it's literally like two hours later 
I'm looking up and it feels like a half hour has gone by and it's literally like two hours. So I have to set a timer anytime I'm on TikTok. I, I get it. Is there anything you wanted to talk about for reading or anything like oh, that? Shoot. Um, <laughs> like I said, I'm trying to read Dune and I'll get there eventually. Um, lately, I've been watching some stuff. So I've decided I need to go through all the Star Wars movies again. Okay. And I had kind of started this in the past. So I, I'm like, I just finished A New Hope. Mm-hmm. So I'd gone through the second trilogy first because I'm doing it in time order. Okay. And then I'm like, you know, I never finished all these. So when Daniel Craig, I love James Bond movies. My dad was addicted to them. I got addicted to them. It's one of those things. Mm-hmm. So I saw the first Daniel Craig movie, Casino Royale. But then... Right when the next one came out, I started having babies Mm -hmm. and I wasn't getting out to the movies and my husband wasn't a fan of a lot of movies. He Mm -hmm. still isn't. But I mean, so I'm like, okay. So I realized I hadn't seen any of them and the new James Bond movie is out right now and I'm dying to go see it. So I've been watching some of those as well. So I'm almost caught up on all the Daniel Craig movie. And I'm like kicking myself for not doing this sooner Mm because I'm enjoying them so much. And my husband told me, I'm willing to watch another James Bond movie with you if you want to try it with me. So I've decided we're going to have to start. So he seen, he saw Casino Royale and I, we both saw at the same time where I hadn't seen it before. And it was a little darker and different. Have you seen that? Casino Royale? Yeah. Mm-hmm. With Daniel Craig. Oh, no. A... I saw the original Casino Royale. Okay. I haven't seen the Daniel Craig one. So the Daniel, it's a little bit more dark for a James Bond movie, a little less humor, a little bit. And I realized, hmm, that gives him one impression <laughs> you know, of this. Mm-hmm. So I decided I'm either, I need to show him uh, one of the original Sean Connery ones. I'm leaning towards um, Goldfinger, I think. Okay. But it's hard to decide which one. <laughs> that are, and I also love, I really, I mean, I liked Roger Moore too, but I really loved Pierce Brosnan in the role. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I did not like Timothy Dalton in the role. I like Timothy Dalton. I don't like him as James Bond. Yeah. These I really like Pierce Brosnan in the role. Yeah. Um, and I used to like Sean Connery, but then I discovered he was an asshole. So that just like changed all of the roles that Sean Connery has had. Well, yeah. You know, and how I, mean, I interpret them. Um, it, it does change it a bit. It's just, it's so funny. You'll see people going, what was the best James Bond? Yeah. And almost, it, it's almost guaranteed everybody's going to go, Sean Connery. And I think it's an unfair question for this reason. Sean Connery was the first. Mm-hmm. He is the one who originated the movie role. Mm-hmm. And he was in it in several movies. So try to sit there and separate the role from him mm-hmm. and go, which one's the best? Doesn't really work because if you, Mm-hmm. I read some of the books because that's how obsessed I was. Mm-hmm. If you look at the character in many ways, Daniel, if you were to combine Daniel Craig and Pierce Brosnan into one man, that would be it. Mm-hmm. Cold, piercing eyes, mm-hmm. just a coldness to him, but also suave. Mm-hmm. And while and I'm not saying Daniel Craig doesn't have some suaveness to him, but not that level of Pierce Brosnan, though. Mm-hmm. I so, just love Pierce Brosnan, though. I, mean, I do, too. And I remember when I I used to watch um, Remington Steel. Oh, yeah. And I thought he was so awesome. And I remember telling my dad, he needs, he should be the new 
James Bond. My dad's like, what? Him? He's a goof. He's so... Oh, that's so funny. But then when he saw Goldeneye, the first one with him in it, uh-huh. my dad's like, okay, he was good. Yeah. That's so I'm fun. I'm like, I told you he would be. Yeah. I know things, dad. Yeah. That's so funny. Well, this was a great week. Oh, my gosh. All the work you did to dig up the family. Yeah. That's pretty amazing. Now, who and are we doing next? I believe next time I have on our schedule, we're going to tackle. Well, November is going to be interesting. So we have two exciting ones for November. The first one we're going to do is Lee Harvey Oswald. Ooh, that'll be fun. And then I think we're going to do a missing person um, from the 1930s, Barbara, author Barbara Follett. Oh, very interesting. Well, very cool. Well, yeah, as always, this was delightful. Oh, thank you all. I had so much fun. Me too. Have a great week, everybody. And we will be with you again next time where murder and family meet. The first one we're going to do is Lee Harvey Oswald. Ooh, that'll be fun. And then I think we're going to do a missing person um, from the 1930s, Barbara, author Barbara Follett. Oh, very interesting. Well, very cool. Well, yeah, as always, this was delightful. Oh, thank you all. I had so much fun. Me too. Have a great week, everybody. And we will be with you again next time where murder and family meet. Thank you for listening to Murderous Roots. If you enjoyed our podcast, we hope that you'll subscribe and leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you and any suggestions you might have for future episodes. You can find us on most social media outlets like Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and even TikTok. You can also find us at MurderousRoots.com. That's M-U-R-D-E-R-O-U-S-R-O-O-T-S.com, where you can find more materials related to the episode that we just discussed. 